When men take it upon themselves to take the law into their own hands, deciding who shall live and who shall die, might it not open the door to malicious spirits intent on distributing their own form of justice? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to The Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. Colonel John Poole Monroe seemed strangely quiet and preoccupied that September day in 1856 as he met with his friends at the headquarters of San Francisco's 2nd Committee of Vigilance. Sullen and remote, he seemed to have drifted far off into a world of his own. Suddenly, he looked up and quietly asked, do you think the dead can come back to haunt the living? What? Someone asked in surprise. Ghosts. Do you believe in ghosts? The colonel asked. Surely you are joking, a skeptic responded. But they needed only look at their friend to know that he was deadly serious. The words came slowly and deliberately as he continued. For over three months now, strange things have been happening in my home, things for which I can find no other explanation. His friend sat dumbfounded as Monroe recounted how his Russian Hill home had inexplicably come under siege by seemingly supernatural forces. Without warning, inanimate objects had taken on lives of their own flying about the room, Horrific phantoms materialized out of the evening air, and terrifying shrieks emanated from the house at all hours of the night. If anyone else had made such a statement, he would not have been taken seriously. But John Poole Monroe was a man who had earned his friend's respect. Formerly an engineer, and now a highly successful businessman, and judge advocate of the Second Committee of Vigilance, the 40-year-old Englishman was admired for both his mental agility and personal courage, his only eccentricity being a passion for riding to the hounds each morning with his beautiful wife in the manner of a country squire in pursuit of the foxes, coyotes, and wildcats which shared the surrounding countryside. But even this was done with such style and panache, he with the hunting horn to his lips and she in an exquisite riding habit, that their morning rituals served only to add an even more dashing and colorful aspect to his personality. Still, his story was beyond belief, and two of his friends, a lawyer, William H. Rhodes, and mining engineer, Elmer and B. Paul accepted Monroe's offer to visit his home and observed the phenomena firsthand. Thus, 
On Friday evening, September 19th, 1856, the two men set out from their home on the southern slope of Russian Hill to begin what was to be the most baffling and incredible adventure of their entire lives. It was a clear, cool evening, and an almost full moon was beginning to rise as they reached the summit of Russian Hill stopping for a moment to catch their breath and admire the object of their quest. Perched upon the western slope, on the northeast corner of Chestnut and Larkin, and commanding a breathtaking view of the bay, Manro's fanciful Swiss chalet appeared to glow phosphorescently in the moonlight. Constructed of iron and shipped in sections around Cape Horn, the house was a fantasy of high-pitched gables, dormer windows, and leaded glass adorned with fantastic carvings, spires, and ornamental ironwork which hung like lace from its numerous eaves. Crowning the peak of each roof were rows of turnip-shaped finials. An English garden of hollyhocks and roses completed the fairy tale atmosphere. By eight o'clock, they'd reached the front door where they were greeted by the colonel and ushered into the library. May I introduce you to my wife, Eliza, he began, presenting a demure young woman with light blue eyes and long blonde hair, and then continued by introducing his sister, Mrs. Benedict, and the latter's fourteen-year-old daughter, Mary. As they entered the library, where they sat down around a large cherrywood table, Paul asked the ladies if they were frightened by the strange occurrences. Oh, no, not now, Mrs. Monroe replied. It was terrible at first, but now we're all rather used to it. If they were really malevolent and tried to hurt us, that would be one thing. But actually... They're quite childish and do the silliest things. Yesterday, I found all the salt had been emptied into the sugar bowl, and the sugar was in the salt box. And today, I bought a wonderful hat downtown. When I got home, I laid it upon the piano. I looked away for only an instant, and then turned back to glance at it again. Every feather had been plucked from the bonnet. Mary's bright eyes flashed with unabashed excitement, and Paul wondered if somehow she might be responsible for the ghostly pranks. There was only one way to be certain. While the others lightly placed their hands upon the table in the hope of encouraging communication from the spirit world, Paul took up a position outside the circle where he could observe everything and detect any possible trickery. They waited a few moments in silence. Then, slowly, the table began to move. A knock was heard somewhere from within the room, then another. Then the heavy table began to rise from the floor as an almost continuous succession of raps and thumps were heard emanating from the table and from almost every other part of the room as well. All five participants clearly had their palms resting flat on the table, but 
Incredibly, as Paul stared in amazement, the immense table rose a foot and a half from the floor, and then floated in mid-air as lightly and gently as a fallen leaf dancing upon an autumn breeze. They next darkened the room by removing a lamp, but as the moon had by now filled the room with a silvery glow, every person and object could still be scrutinized with perfect accuracy. Rhodes asked, that each member of the circle hold his neighbor's hand tightly to preclude against deception while Paul continued his watch from a distant corner. Suddenly, almost every object in the room seemed to come alive. Books flew from their shelves. Sofa and chair cushions were hurled about in all directions, and the doorbell began to ring violently. At the same time, everyone came under personal attack. Some were slapped or struck by phantom hands, while others were pulled by their hair, kicked by spectral feet, or poked and pinched by invisible fingers. All the while, they endeavored to hold hands even more tightly, the circle remaining unbroken. Meanwhile, Paul flailed about in an attempt to block the blows he was receiving and perhaps catch his assailant. To his horror, each of his frantic swings met nothing but empty air. By the time the barrage had ended, Paul had become convinced that the phenomena were indeed genuine, and he sat down at the table with the others, joining hands with two of the ladies. As if in answer to his joining the circle, a book immediately flew across the room, striking one of the ladies on the chest. Paul picked it up and placed it upon the table. The book flew open before him. Mystified, Paul closed the book. But again, the book flew open. Paul turned down a corner of the page to mark the place and when a light was produced, found on the indicated page the question, Cannot ye discern the signs of the times? The only scriptural quotation in the entire volume. Perhaps, they reasoned, this was a sign that the spirits were ready to communicate. So, by means of a rapt alphabet code, they began to communicate with a spirit who claimed to be the ghost of James King of William, the crusading newspaper editor whose assassination had given rise to the Second Committee of Vigilance. Have you any message for us? Monroe asked. None, the spirit answered. Was it you who appeared before my family for several evenings? Monroe continued. It was, the spirit responded. Will you appear tonight? I will. What sign will you give? I will ring the doorbell. Breathlessly, they waited for several minutes in silent anticipation, but as pulses quickened, an eerie quiet hung over the house. Then the doorbell began to ring frantically, and the front door shook as if someone possessed of enormous strength were attempting to enter by force. The house dog began to bay and growl ferociously at the unknown intruder. Colonel Monroe ran to the door, but upon opening it, found no one there. 
courageously he walked the perimeter of the property and searched the grounds but all to no avail no mortal hand had pulled the bell rope no sooner had he returned than the doorbell again began to ring but again the martyred newspaper men failed to materialize they began to wonder if it might be some other spirit masquerading as king to test this theory they questioned the spirit further although the first two or three questions were answered correctly when they asked how long have you been dead an incorrect answer was given again they asked the spirit to identify itself and this time the name capitano was rapped out mrs bennett gasped capitano was the name of an elderly kanaka woman she had known in the hawaiian islands who had died a few years before will you not appear to us the colonel asked i will the spirit tapped back promising to announce her appearance by ringing the doorbell almost immediately the doorbell rang and a large bush growing near the east window began to shake violently as they looked toward the window they clearly beheld a human figure silently glide to within two feet of the window not ten feet from where they sat unable to move but before they could focus clearly upon the details of its form the spectre vanished as rhodes sprang to the window another phantom rose up before them unlike its predecessor however this was the most frightening form of which the human mind could possibly conceive it appeared as rhodes would later record in the moonlight silent still and sublime in its horrible deformity if all the fiends in hell had combined their features into one masterpiece of ugliness and revolting countenance they could not have produced a face so full of horrors it was blacker than the blackest midnight and over its head and body it had spread a mantle of the most stainless white looking like a robe of new-fallen snow covering the blackened remains of a conflagration it seemed as though personified sin had snatched the garment of a seraph and spread it over its own thunder-scarred and hell-scorched form its face was turned towards them in profile and wore an expression of cruelty and revenge darkened by the frown of everlasting despair as if in a trance the others drew towards the window and petrified with horror gazed transfixed upon the terrible wraith rhodes felt physically sick and filled with a desperate need to immediately flee the house and escape into the fresh air he rushed for the door quickly followed by all but paul who fearlessly maintained his position by the window as they fled the library tables chairs rugs fire pokers and cushions flew up into the air as if attempting to block their passage and sailed about the room in all directions as rhodes ran out of the room 
a cushion from the parlor struck him on the head and one of the ladies was almost blinded with dust as a sadly neglected chair covering flew up toward her just as they reached the door the front gate tore itself loose from its hinges flew up a flight of ten steps and wedged itself tightly against the front door so as to keep the door from swinging open thus preventing their escape panicked they ran back hoping to escape by the kitchen door by this time however the phantom had vanished in its last moments paul had watched as the dreadful apparition then not more than eight feet away lightly lifted its robe from the ground and gently glided off a few yards toward the barn before it evaporated into the evening air mrs manro's mother and two of mrs bennett's younger children aroused by all the noise also clearly saw the apparition from an upstairs window and watched with a hypnotic-like fascination until at last it disappeared from view dazed and terrified the group reassembled together in the library where they stood utterly speechless staring at each other in stunned amazement as for rhodes he had experienced quite enough for one evening and adamantly refused to have anything to do with forming another circle but after having a chance to collect himself he finally relented upon the condition that they should attempt to call up only friendly spirits no sooner did they sit down and make their wishes known than rhodes felt a cool delicate hand running its fingers through his hair and gently caressing his cheeks and forehead at the same moment each of the others felt similar soothing hands softly stroking their brows cheeks and hair though each member of the circle was still holding tightly to his neighbor's hand then paul announced that he could see the phantom hands and hardly had the words escaped his mouth before rhodes also beheld them floating before him at first they were faint almost invisible but gradually over the course of five or six minutes they grew more and more palpable until at last he saw them as clearly as if they were made of flesh and blood there seemed to be at least a dozen of these hands and they seemed to be as gentle and loving as the previous spirits had been horrifying as if they were striving to make amends for the pain and terror caused by their predecessors the colonel who had been suffering all evening from an excruciating toothache asked if they might be able to ease his pain at once several hands began to tenderly massage his jaw and continued to do so until the pain had completely disappeared these new spirits identified themselves as their celestial guardians and further soothed and enchanted the circle with kind and uplifting personal messages the hour had by now however grown late and the group reluctantly adjourned for the night baffled and amazed by the previous night's experience rhodes and paul met secretly a number of times over the next two days to compare notes and convince themselves as to the reality of all they had encountered 
Their accounts match perfectly down to the smallest detail, as well as matching Matt Moreau's memory of the evening. Finally satisfied beyond all doubt that neither of them had been duped, nor had they been hallucinating, the following Saturday night, the two men found themselves battling an unusually ferocious, cold, and wet westerly wind as they again climbed Russian Hill in the hope of repeating the previous night's adventures. Thick banks of fog formed ominously before them, as if the spirits had conspired to make their journey even longer and more perilous. As judge advocate of the vigilantes, Monroe had passed sentence of death upon four men. Could the ghosts of those whom they had hung, they wondered, have come back to haunt him? At last they saw the lights of the unique iron house, and soon they were warming themselves before a cheery fire as the ladies came downstairs to join them. They had seated themselves around the library table and were about to begin when the Manrose bloodhound began to bay and growl. Everyone looked to the window in expectation, but nothing materialized. Still, the bloodhound bayed. Bravely, the colonel opened the front door and walked out into the thick fog. A few moments later, he returned, not pursued by a menacing ghost, but with a mutual friend who had been wandering out in the mist for over an hour. He had attempted to find a shortcut over the hills, but had succeeded only in becoming lost amidst the fog and the darkness. He had been attacked by at least half a dozen dogs, and had lost his hat in the process. He now stood before his friends bareheaded, cold, tired, and dripping with condensation from the mist, but eager to join their circle. Again, they sat down around the table and joined hands. Soon the table began to rise from the floor, and again ghostly knockings began to emanate from all parts of the room. But were these spirits the guardian angels they had so hoped to meet again, or were they the mischievous and terrifying goblins they had come to dread? After about half an hour, this question was rudely answered when both Rhodes and Paul were violently struck in the face, on the head, and upon other parts of their bodies. Paul next felt a pair of spectral hands rifle through his breast pocket where he kept the key to his safe. Within moments his companion saw the key slowly rise out of his pocket and then fling itself on the table. No sooner was this accomplished than the ghostly pickpocket set to work on a watch which Paul wore on a ribbon about his neck. Breathlessly, they watched as the timepiece floated over his head, suspended itself for a moment in the air, and then carefully floated down to the table. Wishing to test the spirits again, the ribbon was placed around Mrs. Manro's neck. Again, the watch rose into the air, hung tantalizingly for a moment in mid-air, and then playfully dropped down into her bodice. 
At the same time, other ghostly hands continued to search through Paul's clothing until it found a small pincushion in his vest pocket, which they quickly appropriated and threw down onto the table. All the while, each member of the circle was continuously assaulted, poked, or stroked by invisible hands. At one point, Rhodes was struck so hard in the right eye that tears began to form, and he felt compelled to complain. Immediately, at least six phantom hands reached for his handkerchief, gently used it to wipe away the tears, and then began to massage his face until the pain was gone. Once they had succeeded in soothing both his pain and his temper, however, the spirits quickly resumed their impish behavior and insolently dashed the handkerchief across the table and into one of the ladies' bosom. The colonel had previously mentioned that he had often heard ghostly voices closely approximating the human voice, but softer and less distinct, along with whistling throughout the house and grounds. Rhodes challenged the spirits to demonstrate these talents. He let out a loud, shrill whistle. At once, another whistle echoed back. Again and again he whistled, and each time the ghost responded with an identical whistle. Finally, he set forth the most difficult, complicated whistle he could possibly devise, and again the obliging whistler reproduced it perfectly, note for note. Someone asked if more than one whistler could perform at the same time. Without a moment's hesitation, Six or seven spirits improvised a symphony of whistling. They asked the spirits to move from room to room, performing first in the parlor, next in the hall, then the piazza, and even out of doors. In each case, their requests were granted. Can you speak to us? they asked the spirits. Suddenly the air was filled with the murmur of ghostly voices low, indistinct whispers which seemed to be whistled forth rather than articulated. Paul's name was clearly called out, and several sentences were spoken to him. A girl's name was whispered three or four times into Rhodes' ear, but he could not quite catch the rest of their message. Next, the doorbell began to ring wildly. Paul sprang to his feet, pointing to the window through which a small figure could clearly be seen in the moonlight. The spirit, a young girl, perhaps ten or eleven years of age, cautiously approached the window. She darted back and forth several times and then vanished. Without warning, another spirit appeared at the window within six feet of them, this was too much for Mrs. Monroe, who let out a terrified scream. No one, however, was more terrified than the ghost, who, upon hearing the scream, quickly retreated into the kitchen, passing through a solid wall along the way. Gathering up its courage, a few moments later, the phantom emerged part way from behind the wall, standing half in and half out, as if wondering whether he should attempt another foray. This ghost was tall and thin, 
and although clearly human in form, unlike the others, seemed composed more of shadow than of substance. Uncertain of what to do, the timid spirit again retreated through the wall, and then reappeared and retreated several times, until finally, in apparent frustration, it floated away. It was now past midnight, and the group decided to attempt one last experiment. Throughout the night, Paul had been a favorite target of the spirits, having been thrown several times from his chair. As a final test, the spirits were challenged to pick Paul up into the air and throw him down onto the table. Before he could even prepare himself, Paul felt something grab him by the collar while something else lifted him headlong into the air and tossed him onto the table. Although he landed with a tremendous crash, Paul found to his surprise that he was completely unharmed by the fall. The flight, however, ended any desire on Paul's part for further experimentation that night, and the group agreed to meet again the following Friday evening. The next five days seemed to drag by for Rhodes and Paul as they impatiently waited for the appointed evening to arrive. Thus they were disappointed when upon their arrival they learned that Mrs. Benedict and her daughter would not be present that evening, and to make matters worse, Mrs. Monroe had been ill all week and was suffering from a cold. Still, she would join the circle, and undaunted, the remaining four again joined hands around the table. Several minutes passed without the slightest indication of any spiritual activity, and Rhodes was about to suggest a postponement when at last the table slowly began to move, and a loud succession of raps and creaks and bangs echoed throughout the room. The spirits became so excited and vociferous that several minutes passed before intelligent communication could be established. These, it seemed, were the guardian spirits of the first evening. Their purpose, they explained, was to protect the group from the dark and evil spirits they had encountered earlier. The group next tested the spirits' telepathic abilities. One member of the circle would silently think of a number and ask the spirits to respond by tapping out the number chosen. Almost without exception, the spirits answered correctly. Then, for some time, all became deadly still. The four waited, tightly holding hands. A rustling was heard from under the bookcase ten feet away. The noise became louder and louder until, with a violent start, several large maps which had been rolled up and hidden there flew out into the center of the room. One of two large globes mounted upon short legs rolled out from under a recess beneath the bookcase and headed toward the circle. It passed under the table, finally toppling over as it emerged from the other side. At almost the same moment, the other globe began rolling toward the opposite window. Just before reaching the window, it increased its speed and smashed into one of the two lower panes with such force that it shattered the glass. 
The doorbell began to ring, and hearts pounded as each member of the group turned their eyes to the window. Again, the bush at the window began to shake wildly as the small young girl they had seen a few nights before appeared and drew close to the window, only to fade away a moment later. Next, a strange light appeared at the window. It was like a large globe lantern, but cast no shadow, and danced about in the night like a will-o'-the-wisp. Again it approached the window, only to recede back again, changing shape from circular to oblong to irregular. Back and forth it darted from one side to the other, continually changing shape all the while. Finally, it settled close to the ground and assumed the unmistakable shape of a newly dug grave. It lay there, almost six feet long, an ominous heaped-up mound, glowing with a ghastly phosphorescent glare, a pale glare which shone brighter than the full moon. Then it stretched out into a thin, narrow line, slowly melting away into nothingness. A voice rang out in the darkness. Colonel, help me! Help me! it cried. A moment later, they observed Colonel Manro's manservant running madly toward the house, screaming, They're after me! They're after me! Manro rushed to the front door, allowing the terrified man into the house. As he stood trembling in his torn nightshirt, he tried to explain, I was sleeping just minding my own business when they come after me. I tried to fight them off, but there were too many of them. They knocked me out of bed and started tearing at my clothes. The poor man was given a place of refuge in the piazza, while the remaining four returned back to the library. Hardly had they again seated themselves at the table, however, when a terrible thud was heard in the entryway, and the servant again cried out in pain. Back to the entryway they ran, only to find the hapless man sprawled out on the floor, having been struck on the cheek with a blow so savage as to produce serious swelling. Fearing that the spirits were now becoming far too dangerous, the four reluctantly called an end to the seance. In the months which followed, the spirits continued their mischievous behavior, flinging flower-pots against the wall, spewing water about, extinguishing the lights, and terrorizing the entire neighborhood with their screams and howling throughout the night. The denouement came, however, the day a playful spirit hurled a hatchet at the colonel's head, missing him by only a fraction of an inch. Not long thereafter, the man rose retreated to the safety of a downtown hotel and had the house sealed with new locks. Their departure did nothing, however, to help their Russian Hill neighbors. For although the house was bolted shut with no mortal residence inside, the night air continued to be pierced by horrifying screams which echoed still throughout the house and garden. One by one, the terrified neighbors also began to move away. Before moving away to a more pastoral life in the California gold rush town of Grass Valley, one neighbor, the dancer and adventurous Lola Montez, 
gave Manro's deserted home the name by which it would forever after be known, the House of the Howling Demons. Perhaps it did have something to do with the vigilante's resurgent reign of terror. Perhaps, through the violence they committed in the name of justice, they had unknowingly opened an unseen door into a world of evil. For not long after the Committee of Vigilance disbanded, the howling seemed to lessen with each successive night, until finally, one night, it stopped entirely. After a while, Manro felt it was safe to return, and in the weeks which followed, found that the spirits had left as mysteriously as they had arrived. Although the ghosts had departed, the house's ominous reputation remained. Years went by, and as the Manros passed into the twilight of their lives, they allowed the home which had once been a center of San Francisco society to fall into disrepair. The white paint which once glistened in the sunlight faded and peeled. Rust stains trickled like dark tears down its iron walls, and one by one the once proud ornaments fell from the roof. One day, Eliza died, and the colonel followed not long thereafter. The sad, empty house was sold for taxes, and the new owner, John Klumpke, attracted rumors like a magnet. He was a bit of an eccentric. He looked at the weather-beaten old house, peacefully rusting away, and saw no reason to change things. He liked it that way. And soon, passers-by would point to the old house and whisper about the strange old man in the Prince Albert coat and high silk hat, who was said to sit up all night in an upper room counting his gold. Treasure, they said with a knowing look, was hidden in the loft of the old stable. And stranger still, the ghost of John Poole Monroe was said to have returned to the house, tramping through the rooms at night with mud-stained boots and jangling spurs. Each morning, they said, you could hear the blast of his horn as he rode off to the hunt. Monroe, it seems, had passed from history into legend, and from the haunted to the haunter. When John Klumpke died in his nineties, the windows were boarded up, and the wonderful iron house was left abandoned by all but memories until, in 1918, it was torn down and a modern multi-story building rose up in its place. So very much has changed since that September evening when William Rhodes and Alamaran Paul first climbed Russian Hill in search of the unknown. Yet, if you stand there today, and just for a moment allow yourself to become engulfed by the wind which so often whips up around one at that particular spot, it is not hard to imagine that perhaps a few spirits may still remain, hiding in the shadows, waiting to one day return.
The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theater. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of everything you ever wanted to know about ghosts but were afraid to ask, by Mark Lyon, and San Francisco Ghosts, by Mark Lyon, and Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei.